I'm Jake Miller from the Educational Duct Tape Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect those of others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, everyone. I just want to let you know about a new podcast that I think you will really like by my friend Jeff Eichler. You know him from his other podcast, Getting Unstuck, and the book Shifting, How School Leaders Can Create a Culture of Change. Jeff's new podcast venture is called Cultivating Resilience, a whole community approach to alleviating trauma in schools. It is a podcast series that showcases thought leaders, school leaders, and mental health providers who are working to lessen the devastating impact of the trauma that students bring with them through the schoolhouse doors. You can get there in the following ways. Go to the link in the show notes. Go to my webpage at stephenmaletto.com. Just click on the podcast art for cultivating resilience. Or go to your favorite podcast station like Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, Stitcher, etc. And find the browse or search button and type in cultivating resilience. I think you're going to enjoy this. Thanks for listening and have fun learning. The holidays are on their way. And they can be a particularly stressful time of year if you don't have a plan. Well, have I got a solution for you. Join my friend Lynn with ConnectFlow Grow in her launch of Stress Less Holidays. Through this live Zoom webinar, Lynn will teach you how to evaluate your stress and develop a plan to reduce it. This is an abbreviated version of her 21-day Stress Less Challenge to give you the best tools in the shortest time frame. A less stress holiday is priceless. Your investment of $17 per person or $2,500 flat rate per organization is the first step towards taking control of holiday stress. Learn more about Stressless Holidays and join by going to my website, stephenmaletto.com sponsors. Click on the ConnectFlow Grow logo and the link will take you to where you can find out more information and sign up. Time for you to stress less during the holidays. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Dr. Naftali Hoff. He is the president and executive coach at Impactful Coaching and Consulting. Join us as we talk about coaching, how to address leadership challenges, his book, Becoming the New Boss, The New Leader's Guide to Sustained Success, masterbind groups, and so much more. Lots to learn today. Thanks for listening. And oh, by the way, don't forget, it would be so cool if you went to uh, my website, stephenmaletto.com slash reviews and went in and reviewed the podcast. Could you do that for me? That'd be so cool. Thanks so much. Enjoy the show. Boone Titanium Rings found on the web at boonrings.com is an affiliate partner of Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12. And I'm also a customer. I have this really cool ring that's got these carved pistons and and stars in it. I love it. They make rings of titanium that are carved, laser cut, and engraved, as well as they have inlays of many types of materials like meteorite, acrylic, wood, carbon fiber, and so many other types. They also have special collections that are incredible designs. One of the top sellers are the Gamer Rings, the Stealth Series, and the Black Zirconium. As a note, they also make earrings, pendants, cufflinks, and for you musicians, they make cool trumpet mouthpieces. Love it. Go to boonrings.com and at checkout, use my code, capital T, capital L, capital L, capital K, number 12, and you'll get 10% off your purchase. So go check them out. I love my ring, and I know that you will love yours. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Dr. Naftali Hoff is an accomplished executive coach, organizational consultant, and sought-after trainer and lecturer. He is the president and executive coach at Impactful Coaching and Consulting. Naftali is passionate about leadership and writes about what makes leaders most successful. He is a former educator and school leader who loves to teach, learn, and garden. He is the proud father of six and is married to a woman who he doesn't deserve. <laughs> I love that comment, by the way. Today, we are going to talk about coaching and why leaders need it. Mastermind groups, becoming more productive as a leader, your book, and your podcast lead to succeed. Naftali, thanks for joining me today and say hi to everyone. Hi, Stephen. Thank you so much for having me here. And hello, everybody. I'm super excited for this conversation. Well, I'm glad you're here. And let's start by talking this. You're a former educator who was a teacher and eventually a head of a school. If you could go back in time and tell yourself something when you became that head of a school that you wish you knew then, what advice would you go back and tell you? Oh, there's so much. But <laughs> I, I think I would start with maybe two things. Number one, don't believe your press. And number two, uh, go slow. 
especially as it relates to change. And I'll unpack each of those. Um, so the first piece, you know, I came from a community up north. I was actually living in Chicago at the time, and I had held multiple positions within the community. Uh, and this was, this head of school position down in Atlanta was the next, I guess you'd say, career step and it was the logical progression. And thankfully, I'd accomplished a lot already by that point in time as a teacher, as a part-time administrator, as a college professor. And so there was a lot of excitement relating to my hire, even though the fact that um, I was replacing somebody who had been in the school for many years, who had hired practically all of the staff, had really built the school to its current size and reputation, there still was a desire for some young blood, you know, some somebody to come in and um, bring the school, so to speak, to the 21st century. And so I felt this need to take action more quickly. And I felt that because there was such receptivity to my hire, that I'd have the wherewithal by which to do so. Um, and because I was young, and uh, not necessarily super experienced specifically to this, I began to move towards making changes that I knew needed to be made because everybody had come to me, all the people who wanted to see things different had come running to me over the course of the summer and told me all about it. I had listened intently to the um, search committee that was interested in bringing in somebody new and all the challenges that they clearly were seeing. I listened to the board and the challenges they presented. And I also listened to the teachers but in that group in particular, not as well as I should have. And so uh, early on, I began to do things that I felt a school really needed to be doing uh, as far as oversight, as far as discipline, as far as, you know, proper, let's call it procedural elements and, and, and really bringing the school to a place where it was professionally run and not sort of a uh, mom and pop school that had grown organically over the years. Uh, the challenge was that I had not built sufficient equity with my teachers and as a result, everything I did from a certain point in time and onward, I felt had a certain degree of headwinds right, right away. And I needed to be able to take a step back and reestablish trust and really work on relationships and try to ease people into um, this new reality and this new guy, let's call it, um, who was not there to fire people, was not there to cause major um, upheaval but was just there to do certain things that maybe were not addressed previously. And, and so I think it's really important when you think about it, Stephen, from the perspective of what do you do when you start? Uh, and that, by the way, that's why I wrote, well, I know we'll, we'll talk about it later, but my book, Becoming the New Boss, was really intended to be the text that I wish I had when I started in my position. It was like what I didn't have, but I should have. Because when you do start out, it's all about building that foundation. You can do a tremendous amount as a leader, but you need to be able to have the people behind you. You know, John Maxwell, the famous uh, leadership uh, trainer, author, and he says, in effect, that if everything go is going well, if, if, you, if you have a, a leader you support and that leader has a, uh, a mission that you could support, it's obvious, get behind the leader. If you have a leader who you cannot support and his mission you cannot support, clearly you need to find a new leader. Those two are obvious. But what happens if you have one of the two? So if I have a leader that I can support, but I don't agree with his or her vision, I don't agree with what they want to accomplish, so then the response is get another vision. But if I have a leader that I cannot support, despite the fact that I agree wholeheartedly with the vision, the purpose, the direction that the leader wants to bring the school or institution you know, to move it forward, then research very clearly says find another leader because it all connects back to that individual. So if people have a positive relationship, good things will happen. If people feel for whatever the reason that there isn't that connection, that chemistry, they can't support that person, they don't feel that person is trustworthy, no matter what great ideas and what motivation they have, the bottom line is they're likely to fail. Gotcha. Just a side note, I, I was someone who marketed myself as someone who came in to, to change buildings and i wish i'd had your book because <laughs> you know it's it's it i mean I, there were people that i specifically read and uh, maxwell would be one of them john maxwell would be one of them and and uh they were very helpful but having that that idea of the new boss you know is uh is a great thing and uh it's very cool that uh, you've written a book about that uh so so awesome let's uh you know when you were 
um, the head of a school, what was something that was very challenging to you? I mean, what is something that you remember most about uh, it just kind of sticks out as something that was challenging that you had to deal with? Yeah, so I, I think my my previous response definitely would be the center point of this answer, like managing change. Managing change in an environment that frankly wasn't used to it um, is something. And I think in the academic world, change comes very slowly. In different environments, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, change is, is all the rage. People talk about failing fast. People talking about um, you have to fail before you could succeed. But the academic world doesn't work that way. But we're not trained that failure is a good thing. We're trained that if you fail, you will get a bad grade and you will not get a good job. And so we have a very different vantage point. And by the way, there's a lot of contention, and I would even say tension, but contention minimally between the entrepreneurial startup real world, let's call it, and the world of academia exactly for that reason. I remember once when I was pursuing the final course of my of two master's degrees, the first one, I'd started it in New York. And then when I married my wife, we moved out to Chicago. So we want, I wound up in a small leafy campus in a town called Schomburg, Illinois. It's Northwest of Chicago. It's a suburb. And right there is Motorola, at least the, the, the U S home of, uh, of Motorola. And this was back when Motorola was very big and, and uh, perhaps the leading seller of, of, of cell phones uh, going back around 20 years or so. And the, 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 the professor, he was a really good guy. I liked him a lot. He was very hands-on. He taught me a lot of things about teaching that I never learned elsewhere. But one thing he told me is that he had a conversation with an exec over at Motorola, and the guy said to him, you guys in education, you have it all wrong because you're all about everyone do your own work, everyone memorize your own information. There should be no, no passing of information. We call that cheating. Whereas in the real world, it's all about collaboration. It's all about problem solving. It's all about working together. And I think the educational world has changed somewhat. If you've looked at Bloom's taxonomy, you'll notice that the very top of the pyramid now focuses on creation, which wasn't part of the original Bloom's taxonomy, which maxed out at evaluation, right? So the top was to evaluate. Now we're looking to create. We're looking to make something new. We are looking to collaborate more. There is cooperative learning. We do things in pods and whatnot in ways that we didn't before. But there's still a big gap. There's still this idea that by the end of the day, I'm going to be evaluated for what I know and what I can do by myself, not necessarily how I can collaborate with others, help them succeed, and, have, and leverage others' wisdom for me to succeed. Right? Some of the most capable people, um, Henry Ford is a classic example, where not considered to be uh, so knowledgeable in a variety of ways. There was a famous court case where he was the defendant, and I forget exactly what the issue was. But at the end of the day, he was able to leverage and so many great entrepreneurs and leaders, they're not necessarily the smartest people in the room, but they know how to leverage other people's experiences and wisdom, surround themselves with really good people, and then use their skills to, to move it all in a direction that ultimately produces, whether it's a profit or some other desired outcome. And that I think is, is a very important piece as we think about education. And as we think about change and as we think about helping, you know, our people grow, that it's not all about us. It's about what can we, I don't know if the audience are school leaders, teachers, some combination thereof, but really a school, we have a tendency to isolate. We go into our own classrooms and we close the door. I remember once when I was in graduate school reading a book, something along the lines of the loneliest position in the world. I don't think it's quite that. We're not scientists in Antarctica, but you know, there are there are few positions out there which can be as isolating as teaching. Right? Because we spend all day with kids and we're not necessarily in a situation where we have the opportunity to collaborate all the time. So leaders do need to find ways to bring people together for conversation, to help people grow, to give them opportunity for their own personalized development. There's so much we can do to borrow from the from the business world. And frankly, a lot of great things that the business world could borrow from the world of education. Um, but it's all about thinking about growth and not just here I am. I got my degree. I have my experience now as a teacher. Don't bother me because I've seen that a lot also, you know, where we don't necessarily want to take on something new because we feel comfortable. But life, we don't grow through comfort. We grow, grow through being a little bit uncomfortable. And if I would have known that better as a leader, I probably could have communicated it better 
And I think there would have been more receptivity as a result. That's, that's cool. Cause it, you know, it is something that, uh, um, you know, I, I love what you're talking about. We have in education, you know, first of all, we're, you know, oftentimes <laughs> the corporate world's reaching out and going, you know, you're, you're just in a pretend world down there. So, um, let's, let's talk about the real world. And, but it's at the same time, it is difficult to make change because you, oh my gosh, it, being able to, um, Sometimes you'd think, uh, you know, that book, Who Moved My Cheese from a long time ago comes sure. to mind because it's like, uh, um, you know, some of the, <laughs> some really don't want anything moved. No cheese. Don't take my cheese anywhere and go anywhere else with yeah. it. And, uh, um, and you, you'd think that you had ruined their, um, you know, ruined their lives. I mean, it just, uh, and all it is is trying to move things forward. So, uh, um, just, just quite interesting. I, you know, it, one of the things that, uh, you know, I think about in, in dealing with change is that also I think something that comes with it out of something that you just said is even just the, uh, the understanding of, uh, trying to get the leader and the, the team on the same understanding of what's going on and what, what's, what you're trying to accomplish and such. I think that's a interesting aspect to that. So sure. Good stuff. I, you know, today you're the president of impactful coaching and consulting. When you talk about coaching, what do you mean? That's a great question. In fact, it's such a good question that when I first got started and I hung my shingle, I actually could not properly delineate between coaching and consulting. And there really are two different things. Um, and I, we might even touch on mentoring at some point. I think that's a third bucket. So let's, let's hit one at a time here. I'm not going to dive too much into the consulting side, but coaching really is more about, in my mind, there are two, I call the two A's. One of them is awareness and the second is accountability. And the idea is as follows. Um, for the most part, coaching believes or the coaching premise is that the client, the person who is being coached is, um, is, is, is complete, is knowledgeable, is not somebody who is quote broken. So it's not a therapeutic approach, although there is a therapeutic benefit to coaching. But the idea is that we assume that the individual that is being worked with understands fundamentally what needs to happen in order for growth to occur. And of course, growth could happen in so many different areas. There are life coaches, there are business coaches, there are leadership coaches, there are health coaches. Um, each one has a niche, but the fundamentals of coaching for the most part are the same. Maybe health coaches are a little bit different because they tend to be more do this, do that. Nutrition coaches, like they tell you what to do. But coaching for the most part is not about telling a client what to do. It's more about using questions to elicit thoughtful responses. So it's about creating awareness. So let's say you're having a difficulty with a, a coworker, which is a very common thing. You know, I run mastermind groups. I think we'll talk about that a little bit later. One of the most common problems, in fact, I ran one last night, and um, the person who presented the challenge is dealing with a segment of his faculty that constantly shows up late for the beginning of the day. It happens to be a religious school, so there are prayer services. But the point is that there's an issue and it's, it's, it's somewhat problematic on a few levels. Other, other constituencies are noticing it. It clearly doesn't create the right professional environment. How do I deal with not alienating these individuals and at the same time making sure that they are compliant with the expectation of being on time? So oftentimes our problems are interpersonal. And I would actually say for school leaders, more of the problems relate to things like time management, people management, than they do about things like curriculum, you know, which is a whole, which is a whole conversation in and of itself. Anyway, so coaching then asks questions to create awareness. Have you ever considered, that's almost a suggestion already, but before that, why do you think this is happening? How long has this been happening for? Was there anything, any point in time where this wasn't occurring? What changed? Right. Trying to help the person to use questioning to achieve awareness about where something may have changed or why something may be different or how certain individuals are reacting compared to, let's say, other individuals and trying to pinpoint the source of a of an issue as a result of that question. So that's the awareness component. Now, let's say, for example, I have an area I want to work on. So maybe in this case, last night, we focused on incentivization. Right, try to incentivize the, the, this group of teachers in a particular way. 
So now what's the accountability to it? What are you going to do with that information? So you've agreed that incentivization is valuable. What are you going to actually do? So you're going to set, let's say, a SMART goal, right? Specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and time-bound. So I'm going to set that goal, and I'm going to achieve it by a certain date and time. And the result, the the goal of the coach then is to say, okay, so when we meet next time, what can I reasonably expect you'll be able to tell me about your progress towards this outcome? So that's the accountability. Because oftentimes we know what we need to do, but that doesn't mean that we get it done. So awareness and accountability are, to me, the two key components of coaching. And they come from asking open-ended questions that create space for a client to think about, reflect on, and ultimately take, take personal commitment towards a solution. Because if I tell you what to do, you may or may not be so inclined to do it. But if you come to that realization on your own, it certainly increases your commitment level significantly. That's that's awesome because that's you know and I and I specifically wanted you to talk about that because I think people confuse words I think they confuse they they combine words to say they think it all means the same thing and yeah. uh, and so I appreciate you talking about coaching because it's just you know and it's and that whole aspect of telling them what to do is uh, it's consulting right in effect right I mean I can tell people what to do but I'm not I'm not being hired to tell you I'm, if I'm your boss I might tell you what to do but even great bosses know the value of coaching. And really well-run businesses or schools or any organization have coaching processes as part of how leaders interact with their, um, with their direct reports. And by the way, the opposite is also true. You can coach up. You don't have to necessarily be the, the supervisor to coach somebody else. You can use awareness-related questioning to help somebody come to a, 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 a realization that um that they may not have come to on their own and that's totally fine as well that's excellent you know that's and and that's going to lead me to my next question which is uh you know why should leaders invest in coaching for themselves you've kind of taken us down that path let's go a little further with it why do you think it's do you think it's important for them (laughs) actually i can think i can answer my own question there but uh. right i i do i do think it's very important although in all honesty i don't know that i thought that way when i was head of school um you know you need a certain degree of humility when it comes to coaching, because you have to be willing to be vulnerable with somebody else. You have to be willing to, to, to commit to things. And um, that does require a certain degree of self-esteem, a certain degree of humility, a willingness to say, I don't have all the answers. And also a recognition that not having all the answers doesn't mean that you are fundamentally flawed. It just means you haven't gotten there yet. And the reality is you'll never get there fully, right? If you think about athletics as a common example, we think of coaching as being very appropriate there, right? Michael Jordan or, you know, pick, pick your favorite athlete uh, who, who sits at the very top of his or her respective sport, they still got coaching till the very end, right? Even if they're an individual, like a, like a tennis player. So you think it's not about a team, it's about an individual. What coaching could they need? They still work with coaches to the very end because, again, it's about accountability. It's, how, it's about people saying to you, you know, I'm noticing this. And especially as people age, they have to adjust in terms of their training, in terms of their, their performance. So there's really never an end because we cannot see everything. We have blind spots, right? Every, every teacher has a leader, every principal, excuse me, every person has a leadership profile. We have a personality profile. We have ways we like to do things that are comfortable for us. And there are other people around us that work differently. And if we're not careful to constantly work on ourselves, we invariably will fall into certain traps, which can make for unpleasant situations. And besides, like I said before, if you want to grow, you have to have accountability. You have to constantly be asking yourself, how can I get better? And how can I do more? Because we're not in it for ourselves. This is a position, if any position exists out there, that's about service, right? That's about community. That's about impacting the lives of others. It's school leadership. So this is the, the place I would imagine more so than anywhere else that investing in yourself so that you can help others is about as good an investment as you can make. I am so in line with you on there. That's, you know, it's funny because something you said before is I, when I was a lot younger, I'm not so sure I thought the same way. And a matter of fact, I can remember the first time a friend suggested I read, 
read, hey, there's a great book to read. And, and, uh, and I can remember kind of struggling until I read it. <laughs> and then when I made myself read it, I went, oh, I see what he's talking about. And, you know, and yeah. suddenly my brain got open to a whole nother world. And, and now I'm the exact opposite. It's like, I, you know, help me, you know, I, I'd love for people to, you know, be that coach for me, you know, introduce me sure. to whatever it is. Cause you really sometimes, and especially when you're dealing with kids and when you're in a world where you're working with people who work with kids, there's not only is there never a dull moment, there's also, you know, there's to me, there's never a, a, uh, pinnacle of knowledge. You've got, you're constantly having to learn because everybody's different that you're working with. So, but, sure. um, uh, and they just good stuff. So I, yeah, I think sometimes it is difficult for people to, especially leaders, cause they're supposed to be the, I, I think some people might think that it uh, signifies that they got a weakness or something like this. I mean, yes. If you run into that a little bit. I do. I do feel that way very strongly. And I, and I write about it in the book. I could talk about moving from me to we, um, because often the trajectory for a school principal is excellence in the classroom. And then we move from excellence in the classroom to the, to the top of the totem pole, maybe through uh, a second tier administrative role first, but eventually to the top of the, of the organizational pyramid. And we're used to being really good, right? There's a reason somebody gets promoted. Usually it's not by default. It's because they've excelled. And for me to now say, number one, it's not about me anymore, right? Because in, in the classroom, I was the all-star. Now all of a sudden I have to take a different perspective. But on top of it, to recognize that classroom excellence is really not a great indicator necessarily of school leadership excellence, right? They're very different skills. Until now, it was mainly about my, my, my qualities as a, as, a, as a pedagogue, as someone who can provide engaging instruction, who understands learners and all of that. Now, all of a sudden, I've got to be a problem solver. I've got to be a collaborator. I've got to communicate on a whole different level. It's a totally different set of skills. And there is no developmental pipeline that I think really works well for this. Even graduate school and whatnot, I have, like I said, two master's degrees. Neither of them really prepared me, I don't think, for my role in school leadership. I think it's really experiential first and foremost, which is not good news, right? Because you want to be able to say, I'm, I'm ready to walk in and succeed, which is why I think, you know, leaders do need to tap into the wisdom of those who have come before them. I think, for example, if you have the ability to talk to the outgoing principal, uh, whether that person is retiring, moving to a new building, whatever the situation is, sometimes it's it's complicated. My my predecessor, his wife actually was critically ill. He was They were older to begin with. She was critically ill. She didn't actually, they didn't finish the year in the building. They, they, their light, their, their dream was to, to move to Israel. And so they, they moved despite her condition so that they could, she could live her last months in that country. He therefore wasn't available for me to tap into as a resource. But those were obviously very unusual circumstances. For the most part, you can learn about the culture. You can learn about the, the environment. You can learn about the teachers and, and you could start to ask questions. You know, how do you think this would go over? What are your thoughts about that? And that person may not have all the answers or they may think differently than you. And that's okay. But at least you're getting some perspective as opposed to trying to walk in, figure it all out on your own and hope for the best. Because when you do that, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. And the problem is many cultures are not so forgiving. And if you have too many X marks by your name on the front end, you don't necessarily as the old head and shoulders commercial goes, you know, you don't get a second chance to make a first impression. And so after a while, it, no matter what you do, you're back to that problem. So that's why I think it's really critical to ask questions, to be humble, to be willing to learn and to go slowly and to manage expectations. Because if you have a board, like in my case, I felt at least that they wanted to see you change quickly. If I could have managed their expectations or maybe even my own vis-a-vis -vis them, it would have been much easier. But because I felt I had this mandate for change up front, I didn't see another way forward. And so that's where a lot of the problems started to develop. That's interesting. Yeah. Cause that's, you know, that is something that, um, the, the, depending on the role that you've taken on, uh, if, if they don't understand what comes with that package, the idea that if you are pushing me to accomplish certain things by certain times, then, you know, the saying of a bull in a china shop comes to mind. And then once you get a bull in a china shop, if you just decided, well, that's not exactly what we wanted, 
Yes. Because yeah. uh, that's, that's one of the things I've discovered is that a lot of times they think they know what they want, but they don't necessarily know what they want until the complaining happens or whatever the situation is when you've sure. started the change process. So, And you see this, by the way, everywhere. You see a professional sports in so many places where like the first stop a leader has, they don't succeed. Right. It's rough. It's, uh, you know, I mean, like with the I'm a Yankees fan. So I think of Joe Girardi, for example. So when he first came to the Yankees, he had already worn out his welcome in Miami. I don't know <laughs> if he had other stops along the way, but he managed a decade in New York after Joe Torre, which was not a small accomplishment. Um, and, and he's not the easiest personality, as, you, as I'm sure everybody knows. Right. <laughs> but he was able to figure out what worked and what didn't and had a successful career as a result. Oftentimes you learn your mistakes. You know, there's a story I tell um, where a, uh, a banker is being interviewed, maybe on a podcast or for a newspaper. And the guy says to him, sir, you've been so successful. What's what's your secret sauce? How did you manage to achieve so much, to make so much money, to impact the world in such a profound way? And um, and, the, and, and the banker replies, two words, good decisions. So the guy says, well, that's wonderful, but we all like to make good decisions and clearly we don't. How, what's your, what's your, your, your path to good decisions? He says one word, experience. And he says, okay, so how do you get experience? And he says two words, bad decisions. <laughs> so we make bad decisions that lead to the experience that help us become better. And there's no real work around the purpose of the book was to help people be more mindful so that they make fewer bad decisions along the way and fewer bad decisions that really blow up in their faces, but we're all going to make them. But that's, that's a reality I think everybody has to come to grips with. None of us are perfect. None of us will ever be perfect. You know, we'll get smarter. We'll get wiser. Hopefully we'll become more humble over time. Um, but we'll still make mistakes. And the more that we know what our strengths are and what our weaknesses are, whether it's through coaching, through conversations with others, et cetera, um, we'll be more effective. You know, it's what you made me think of is like, so as a principal, a former high school principal that I am, the, uh, you know, no one ever talked with you. And, and we go back to when I was a teacher, no one ever talked with you about, uh, um, yeah, that first time you need to meet with parents or, uh, or you have to have the phone call and the discussion that follows with something, a situation that's not a fun situation to be addressing. And, you know, there's, and you've definitely, no matter what, you're going to have to have the situation happen. And if you're not, you know, if you've not gone through it before, you know, you're going to learn from that experience one way or another. <laughs> and uh, we all kind of screw up uh, somewhere in there and uh, learn. I shouldn't have said that one, should I? You know, <laughs> so uh, my point is, is that like, a, you know, a, as an assistant principal in a high school, in a school that wanted, I, they hired me to get the discipline under control. They wanted me to fight fire with fire. So I did. When you go to be a principal, I learned something rather quickly that that often is not the way to handle that. <laughs> Matter of fact, I would agree. Almost never is. <laughs> the one thing I would say is that if you create a culture where people know that you're okay with being told that something isn't right, even if um, even if you're not fully ready to say that, but if you if you tell people anyway, they'll come to you and they'll tell you things that will help you over time. You know, I, I, would, I would go out, for example, my first year to carpool. I wanted to be visible. I wanted to interact with the parents. But the disciplinarian within me, the, the structured individual within me was all about process and procedure and who was following the procedure and getting people to line up. And whatever it was, it became very much not the desired outcome. And my assistant head of school walked into my office and said, I think uh, – we have some pretty good people out there. I think you, you know, you should, you should, you should do something else with your time. <laughs> That's basically nice. Nice. how it went down. And, and I got, I got the message. I still went out not as often. I still try to be more of a pleasant face, but I didn't mix in with, with carpool as much besides for stepping on toes. It wasn't creating the kind of relationship that I really should have been. And thankfully somebody felt comfortable enough to tell me without having to worry about, you know, heads flying. That's, that's awesome. By the way, that's because you, you really need, I got to, I got to mention this because that's one of the things as a leader, you really value those people. As long as you don't, you know, shoot the messenger type thing, you really value those people who will take a step towards, you know, can I, can you deal with me telling you something? <laughs> that type of yeah. thing. <laughs> that's right. I, I used to have a teacher who, uh, he said to me the first time he came to me, cause he wanted to talk about uh, something I had said. Um, 
And he came and he said, I just want you to know, he goes, I think of me as a Jedi and I'm trying to mind trick on you. <laughs> and, and it worked very nicely because it put me in a nice funny spot. And, and uh, he was right. Uh, how I had uh, said something could have been said better. And I had to um, make an adjustment to it so that uh, people understood that, that what I said was interpreted in a way which was not meant. <laughs> so, sure. But uh, I'll never forget the Jedi coming forward to tell me <laughs> this is a friendly Jedi doing a mind trick on you. So I just thought that was a great way of starting that conversation. Uh, you know, one of the things that goes along with coaching fits very well is, and you run uh, some mastermind groups. Can you talk a little bit sure. about the where, what you do with a mastermind group, what it's all about, and why people should be uh, thinking about possibly joining one? Yeah. I would love to, because it's actually of all the things I'm involved with right now, it's it's my single biggest focus. Um, the idea of the mastermind group actually dates back minimally to Napoleon Hill and Think and Grow Rich, which is a book many people are familiar with. It was written back in the 1930s. Um, he talks about the the power of bringing multiple minds together, people who are smart, people who are collaborative, people who are supportive of one another and have an interest in growth. And it's really more, at least it was designed initially more as a business um, collaboration, meaning to say problem solving towards whatever the challenge might be, growth, building customers, brand awareness, et cetera. And I actually joined one for the purpose of growing my coaching business. But I felt that the core concepts are very relevant to school leadership as well. I have some colleagues who run masterminds specifically for school leaders. I started my first last summer. And I've been very blessed to have run, I'd like to say I just started my seventh group. Um, and these are independent school leaders as well as in separate groups, public school, charter school, you know, different types of schools. I think it's important to separate because their challenges are unique. Their structures, their, their environments are a bit unique. Um, but fundamentally, it's about bringing people together who want to solve problems. I do what's called a hot seat, very common part of a, of a, mastermind group, which is where somebody brings a dilemma. We rotate. So every week it's somebody else bring a dilemma to the group. I mentioned one before about the issue of uh, people coming late and, and how do I deal with that? And everybody around the table listens. I do it over Zoom. So it's a virtual table, but everybody listens. I'm the facilitator. So I make sure everybody has a chance to, to ask clarifying questions and then they offer solutions. And the incentivization was one solution that was offered. A bunch of different things were talked about as ideas because we all grapple for the most part with every challenge that's around the table. It's very rare that somebody's going to ask something that other people can't relate to. So to know that I'm going to bring eight, nine people together all to help one individual become better um, or to feel like they have a pathway forward or to have their ideas um, either confirmed or in some ways challenged, that helps that individual certainly, but it helps everybody because we're all part of a collaborative environment in which we're solving problems one for the other. It creates more awareness for me too. And then the second part of my group, I, I break everybody up into breakout rooms. They have partners and we focus on areas that are common growth areas for school leaders. So we're, we're finishing a segment on time management They've been completing activity logs and, 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 and prioritized to-do lists. We've talked about the Eisenhower matrix, what's urgent and important and all those things to really be more mindful of what is the work that needs to be done, what needs to be done when, and by whom, right? Maybe I should be doing it. Maybe I should be delegating it. Who do I delegate it to? How do I empower them? Right? These are important pieces because we're only one person. And some of us have stacks of, 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 of papers and whatnot at our desks that are way too high and unmanageable. And certainly it should never come to that because as school leaders, we're hired to impact an entire school, not to be stuck in an office doing clerical work. So we have to figure out what is our responsibility, right? And we, we delve into Bob Marzano's research and others about the core responsibilities of leaders and then focus very intently on these pieces. And every session I ask the participants, what's a goal that you can set? What's a level of accountability you can achieve where you want to raise the bar for yourself? So we use what's called a scaling method where 10 is excellent and one is very poor. Where are you now and where do you want to get to? Of course, we all want to get to a 10. But if I'm a six today, it's unrealistic to shoot for a 10. Let's shoot for a seven or an eight. And what would represent the difference between a six and an eight? 
And so we start to say, I'm going to do more of this that's going to help me become better in general in this area. So having regular learning, what we might call professional development, tied into a professional network cohesive that develops over time where people are communicating, there's a chat, there's email, there are different ways we collaborate besides for the actual sessions. That, that makes me feel like I'm showing up to a very powerful group and I'm surrounded in the aggregate by much more wisdom than I bring for myself. Very cool. Very cool. I like that. You know, it's, you know, like you said, there's, I mean, you bring different minds together and they, they start talking and thinking through, it's kind of neat what you can uh, achieve or discuss or what comes out of those conversations. Very cool. So it has, I got to imagine Zoom's worked out well for, for, you know, or sorry, name brand there, you know, um, whatever. um, Sure. You know, that was, <laughs> talking that was one, of the, one of the silver linings for me from COVID was the was the fact that people became more accustomed to virtual learning. A lot of the people that I collaborate with are old school, um, not necessarily by age, but just by even by lifestyle choice, not necessarily looking to become fully technological. Um, and, and that's OK on many levels. But, you know, so so a year or two ago, maybe three years ago these people would not necessarily have felt comfortable coming to something online. They were just used to in-person trainings and whatnot. But now I have a group, for example, currently where one person's in Phoenix, one person's in Las Vegas, a couple of people are upstate New York, um, somebody out in Chicago, trying to think of where everybody is, but you get the idea. We could, we could be anywhere. It doesn't really matter. So long as we can all show up at the same time, it doesn't matter where in the world you're located. And that creates new opportunities for learning. I was doing a, a cohort, not a mastermind, but similar concept with uh, Eastern European. These were, these were Jewish folks running small Jewish schools in formerly big Jewish communities that are much, much smaller now. But big cities, places like Madrid and Barcelona, uh, Istanbul and whatnot. Um, but tiny communities, by, relatively speaking, a lot of that because of the Holocaust and migration and whatnot. And so we're bringing all these people together, despite the geographical divide. I'm here in the States. They're out in different parts of the world, but we could all collaborate and learn with one another because of this miraculous 21st century technology. That's, that's so awesome. Because first of all, I had to laugh because I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I've worked with some people who prior to the pandemic, one of the most positive, the greatest positives that come out of this boy, I got a bunch of English teachers right now. They're going, does he ever speak grammatically correct? You know, <laughs> but the, you know, it's, it, it's cool because in just this short period of time where before they were struggling with uh, using uh, Zoom and uh, the different, uh, the ability to have meetings like this, online meetings and virtual training like that, they uh, um, now there's old hat at it. And there's, you know, it's just they know to push the button when they need to and log in and there you go. And uh, and away we go. And I think that's it. so I had to laugh when you said that there's some who are a little behind in the times or, or by right. choice. <laughs> I still try to be careful, though, because I think you can you can kill meetings with Zoom easily. It is hard to listen, especially if you're more passive. So that's why I focus very much on active participation, right? The hot seat is very active. Everybody participates. And in the breakout rooms, you can't hide because everyone has a partner and you're in your own room. They could, they could get off task. That does happen. And I do go around room to room to make sure everybody's focused and knows what to do. But you can't hide. You can't just be on your phone. You can't just be, uh, you know, turning off your camera and running an errand. It doesn't work. So, so you have to know how to utilize Zoom well or any, or any online platform, meeting platform for the purpose of engagement, which I think is just good practice for anyone as an educator. We know this, right? If we want our students to learn, we have to make sure that they're constantly in an active posture and not in a passive one. I got to say this. You don't have adults that would try and not participate, do you? <laughs> you would think so. <laughs> I mean, these people are, are volunteering to, to be part of it. So it is different. Right. I just, sometimes, sometimes for a teacher training, for example, we're not giving them a choice. Right. right? It's an in-service day. You need to show up. Here's the topic, like it or not. So here we go. That's not great, but it does happen. Yes. I mean, I speak at a lot of those. So I, I know what it's like. And I try very much to make sure that even people who don't really want to be there at least feel that their time is well, well utilized and that they feel like they're, they're involved 
that their that their wisdom is appreciated. They have a place to share. I do a lot of jigsaw and 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 cooperative learning because I feel like, you know, Dale Carnegie talks about this. He has that story with a botanist, I think it is, where that individual just went on and on for almost uh, almost an hour, and Dale got in just a few words here or there. And at the end, the botanist turns to a third party and says, that Carnegie is the best conversationalist I've ever talked to, <laughs> right? Even though he said almost nothing, right. because we love to hear ourselves talk. So when you create a situation where others are talking, they like you better. That's just the reality. And teachers should, should know this too, right? The more students can talk, obviously about useful, purposeful content, the more students will enjoy being there, the more they will retain. Um, that's really all we want. And it's less work, frankly, for the teachers too. It's really hard to hold everybody down for 40 minutes. <laughs> but if you can, if you can create ways to engage, it's, it's a win for everybody. That's awesome. Love it. So right on the money. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about uh, this, this booklet you have. You have the impactful productivity blueprint, five steps to increase personal and team productivity, productivity. A listener can get this for free, by the way, at the end of the document, you note this, and, and I just want to point this out in there so we can kind of use this to drive our discussion. Uh, to summarize, many leaders struggle with low productivity productivity. They face rising demands and must find ways to get more done. This leads to strained relationships, heightened stress, and even burnout. Can you help leaders understand how to deal with these challenges? Yeah. So the blueprint actually walks leaders through, um, I have five steps that I think are really important because productivity is not just a one-man game. Productivity is about your team as well. But if you run a school, for example, you could be super productive, but if people around you aren't, you're still not going to get as much done. So you want to be able to leverage your leadership to achieve your own personal productivity as well as others. And a lot of it has to do with knowing what you want. Now, Yogi Berra used to say, uh, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there, right? <laughs> so we could, be, we could be busy, but busyness is not being productive. So it's time on task, but it's knowing which task will move the lever most for you and being really strategic about that. That's a critical piece. And I have the five steps that they're there, plan it, share it, do it, sustain it and lead it. And so planning is obviously the, the steps we need to do. What do we want to accomplish and how will we likely get there? Do we need more resources? Do we need any training, et cetera? The share it is make sure everybody's on board regular communication, morning huddles, one-to-ones, these kinds of things. Um, the, the do it is, you know, actually sitting down, getting things done, blocking out your time, removing distractors, not multitasking, et cetera. Um, sustain it is how do we go beyond the initial enthusiasm to make sure that we don't lose momentum. It involves self-care. It involves, um, you know, just just having having goals that you could, could, could stick with and, and, and manage. And at the same time, um, recognize that there's a higher purpose in what we're trying to accomplish. And then the lead it is one I threw in afterwards, but I think it's really important because as leaders, we have the single greatest impact, not only on general organizational well-being, but actually on student academic performance. My, my dissertation focused on what it is that school leaders do to most motivate teachers in their professional practice. And I recognize it has to be defined better, but at its core, when we talk about teachers who show up and want to do a very good job and really be the excellent instructors that they can be, either classroom instruction, depends on which researcher you listen to, but either classroom instruction or school leadership are the single biggest um, independent variable as far or, or, or indicator of, of student academic performance. So if we're doing a really good job as school leaders, there's no question that everything else is benefiting as a result. So it's not just a productivity piece. It relates to academic performance. It relates to everything we want, we want to do. But if we lead with values, if we create an engaging workplace, if people want to show up, if they believe in their jobs, if they're put in position for success, if we engage them in ways that they want to be engaged, they will do better because we work harder when we love what we're doing. Right. I will sit out there on the, and you mentioned gardening earlier. I'll sit out there on a Sunday morning in my backyard, pulling out weeds and, you know, attending to my, my, my tomato plants or whatever it is. My kids make fun of me. Um, you know, dealing, turning over my compost bin or whatever I got going on out there. Nice. Uh, I'll do it for hours and nobody's paying me a penny. And my reward are a couple of green beans, you know, and <laughs> some tomatoes and a few other things. Because when you have a passion, you know, you, you, you invest in it. 
Now you have to be careful not to confuse passion and profession. My actual, my podcast, my last, my last guest says, don't make your profession, your passion or your passion, your profession, because they're complications, which we can't get into now probably. But um, the idea is that when you love what you do, if you love showing up every day, if you feel like you're making a difference, you're going to work harder and you're going to do better than if you feel you're just punching a clock and doing a job and can't wait to get home. That's awesome. I love it. You know, it's one of the things that, and by the way, I just want to remind everybody, you can get uh, the impactful productivity blueprint for free. These, you know, go in, go to the website and you'll figure out real quick, um, like I did. So you can uh, take a look at uh, Natalie's uh, thoughts about this. So good stuff. I, uh, so let's talk about your book. It's called Becoming the New Boss, The New Leader's Guide to Sustained Success. We've mentioned some of it already. Uh, you know, from the description of Becoming the New Boss, this is noted. While leading others can be very exciting and fulfilling, you will likely also find it to be challenging, perhaps very much so. Your book focuses on uh, some challenging issues that new leaders may may or will face. How about we let's take a look at one of those. Let's talk about this one. How to make a great impression and start off on the right foot. And you've kind of talked a little bit about that. Let's let's go a yeah. little deeper. So I, I think, I mean, it's something as simple as looking somebody in the eye, sticking out your hand, giving them a firm handshake and indicating that you want to get to know them. You know, something as simple as looking good, being, you know, dressing sharp, coming prepared, indicating that you're, that you are the leader. And, and there's a certain stance, there's a certain posture, there's a certain approach uh, that leaders take because ultimately people are looking for them for, for, for guidance. And by the way, we don't want our leaders to fail for the most part, right? The same way oftentimes speakers get up to a stage and they think everybody's looking for them to, to fail. The opposite is the case. Everybody wants a great speaker. Everybody wants somebody to succeed. Nobody wants to be sitting there listening to a loser. And certainly nobody wants to uh, work for a loser. So you shouldn't think that coming into a new position uh, is necessarily fraught with danger in and of itself. It's more a matter of what you do with it and what you do with the opportunity. And so I think that when you come in and you come in and you say, I want to learn about this school, I want to learn about, you know, its history. Uh, I want to know about your successes. I want to know about what makes you great or what you do really well. I'm going to be coming and visiting classrooms, uh, not hiding in my office, and, 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 and doing the things that create a level of connection and an approachability up front. You'll have plenty of opportunity down the road to make changes that you want to make, to bring on people that you think are going to make the school better, to let, if you need to make changes in personnel, to let certain people go. All of that could happen in the right time. But up front, you want to get as much wind behind your sails as you can, um, because then it's so much easier to, to do the heavy lifting on the back end, because you'll have so many people running in to say, how can I help you? I, I really love this, because this is something that I think that, you know, uh, as well, just kind of going back to something I said before, when when you go in and you take a new position, oftentimes, um, if if you've had a chance to talk with the um, the, the outgoing person who was there, that's, that can be helpful. But if you go into a situation where that wasn't a good ending or the, they, right. not a nice separation, whatever that thought is about divorce, that, uh, you know, that the ending was not as good as they would have liked it to have been. Um, you know, so you might not have that. And, uh, and, uh, so just being able to have some sort of those, uh, connections that, uh, you know, might just, just, I don't know, try and figure out on your own. I, I guess what comes to mind is like, uh, you know, I, I went into one school where I was supposed to be a bull in a china shop, like I was talking about before. And that's, that's actually what I was hired to be. And I think they knew exactly what they were asking for. And, uh, but I, I went in and I started meeting. I had meetings with, uh, staff and team members during the summer just to say, Hey, come on in and let's, let's talk. Come meet me and, uh, let's chit chat. Well, you know, the outgoing person had told me some stories about certain people. So I just thought, Hey, I'll, I'll go meet them first just to, cause they, they probably think, I've probably been filled up with information on them. And it was just interesting because, uh, um, you know, out of, out of a couple of those situations, both of them said, um, I'm guessing that you've heard a lot about me. <laughs> I said, yeah, we're, but I don't know you. So let's, let's talk and let's get to know one another. And, uh, you know, one went one way and one went a good way. So, <laughs> but uh, just, I, that's why I thought I'd focus on that because I think, sure. I think being able to give advice on how to start off on the right foot is something that every leader, I mean, especially because you're going to have different, you know, it'd be nice if we all, you know, took that one spot and the rest of our career is in that one spot, but that's typically not yeah. what happens. 
in some ways it's actually more challenging to be promoted from within because yesterday you were my colleague and today you're my boss. It's a whole different conversation. Oftentimes school leadership comes from without, but if it does come from within, then um, the person being promoted needs to recognize that even if I did go hang out with my buddies yesterday and we were in the teacher's lounge and doing whatever we did, our relationship can still be positive, but it can no longer be in that same type of way because ultimately it's going to cause, um, you know, a breakdown in, in, in boundaries and boundaries are important. You still need to be the leader. You still need to be that final authority and people need to be able to respect that. And if they don't have that level of respect for you, you will not accomplish what you want to achieve. Awesome point. Awesome. The, is anything else you'd like to share about your book before we, uh, before we move on for the last couple of questions here? I, I could probably talk about the book for a really long time. Um, I, I will tell you that it's, it, it, was, it was a very valuable opportunity for me to be reflective. Um, I actually began it as a series of blog posts, and I started to piece it together. And I said to myself, wow, wouldn't this really be a useful resource? And it's not, even though it's, it comes from the vantage point of a school leader, it's really for any leader. You know, I shared it with people who are academic leaders, people who are business leaders, and I think they felt pretty much across the board with a couple of exceptions, like if you don't have a board, so that chapter on, on, on owning your board and whatnot is not going to be relevant to you, but almost every chapter is, and they're short enough with actionable takeaways in each chapter that you could pick it up, read it for a few minutes, grab something, put it back down and pick it up again, and, uh, and you'll get something out of it. Excellent. Excellent. The, uh, uh, as we're finishing up, there's a couple other things that I want to mention. First of all, you you talked about it briefly. You have an awesome podcast with incredible guests. Uh, it's called Lead to Succeed. What's your inspiration yes. and direction? Uh, again, I love leadership. So I wanted to have a conversation about it as often as I could. And um, when I was when I wrote the book and I attended a, an author's conference, I kept hearing start a podcast, start a podcast. So that was a motivation of itself. And Frankly, it's created all sorts of new relationships. If I want to talk to somebody who's a complete stranger, especially if they're successful, the likelihood of them wanting to take a cold call for me is pretty low. But if I pitch them the opportunity to be on my podcast, where they could have a conversation that's going to be broadcast, that's totally different. So it creates a whole different access point to people you'd never otherwise meet. And many of those have turned into fruitful business and personal relationships as well. That is so cool. And I love it. I've the fans subscribed sure and li- listening to, a, I've listened to a whole bunch of episodes. So good stuff. The, uh, so continue good, good success with that. The, uh, thank you. Uh, you have a, you have a really cool blog, great ideas in there and thoughts and suggestions and all kinds of stuff. And one of the ones that, uh, a more recent one, uh, was one that really caught my attention because I kind of harp on this a little bit, eight qualities of strong mentors, uh, what do you mean by mentorship? And let's talk about one of your qualities. Sure. So mentorship, we talked earlier about coaching and consulting. I dropped mentorship in there a little bit before. Um, mentorship is more in the consulting sense of somebody who is, let's say, older, uh, more experienced, who is helping a mentee develop into their role. So let's say you're, you're, you're starting a new, a new company or you're trying to get into an industry. You take on a mentor, you ask, obviously, somebody who's willing to give of their time, and there's certain qualities you want to look for. Not every mentor is the same, right? Not every mentor is as, is as selfless and is willing to, um, to listen and is willing to offer you useful advice and all of that. Uh, so you have to really be selective in, in who you go after, but having a mentorship relationship can save you a tremendous amount of aggravation, uh, could speed up your learning curve and could give you um, clarity about what you're doing, right? So often we have so many things to do, but we don't know which is the action or series of actions that's going to really move me forward. And so if you could have somebody who can help you cut through the weeds and determine what's most important and, and in what sequence, uh, that is extremely, extremely valuable. You got that right. And, uh, you know, one of, one of the qualities that you pointed out is uh, a mentor needing to be a cheerleader. I love this one. Is, yeah. Um, what are you talking about? Right. Because oftentimes, you know, we, like I said before, you know, you, you go into situations, you're not really sure. We, we, we have a lot of imposter syndrome. So we, we doubt our capacity. We think we could do something. Then when we get a little bit of resistance or headwind, we start to doubt whether we have the goods and the capacity to push things forward. 
So if you have somebody by the sidelines who are not only, quote, holding you accountable, but also cheering you on and, and, and helping you say, I believe in you, I want you to succeed and just, just stay with it, right? Don't, don't give up because so many people, it's hard to, there's no science to it. I've had conversations on my podcast and elsewhere. Nobody can say this is where, you know, people typically break. But we know so many people, if you just would have gone a little bit further, if you just would have pushed a little bit harder, if you just would have tried a few more calls or a few more whatever, you would have broken through. You were like at the cusp, right? Napoleon Hill talks about this, about some guy who went digging, thought he had, knew where the, the gold mine or oil, I don't remember what it was. I think it was a gold mine. And they were really, really close, but they never found it. And they had invested all of this money into machinery and whatnot and went home empty handed. They wound up selling the machinery to some guy for, for pennies on the dollar. The guy went to a geologist, found out exactly where the problem was, readjusted the, the dig location, and within maybe half a mile or whatever it was, found all this gold. You nice. would have just tried a little bit harder, you would have gotten there. And so often we see that. So having somebody who's cheering you on and saying, don't worry about it, this is expected, these things happen, stick with it, you'll get there, um, is a critical part in having a good mentor by your side. Awesome. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Naftali, before we close, if someone wanted to connect with you or learn more or talk with you about helping them or helping their organization, where would you send them? Sure. Well, my, my website, which we've referenced a few times, impactfulcoaching.com. So that's impactfulcoaching.com uh, is, is my website. That's where you can find all about myself, my services. There's a ton of free resources there. You mentioned the blog, the podcast, uh, the productivity ebook. There are a bunch of ebooks actually that are free and available for download. Um, and there you can learn, like I said, about what I do, uh, learn about the mastermind, learn about my coaching, and um, there's contact information there as well. Excellent. I'll make sure that's in the show notes. So the links are right there and they can pull them up on their phone or whatever they're, they're listening to us on. And uh, I got the last two questions I like to ask my guests and, uh, and they go like this. Here's the first one. How do you keep going when so much is going on that you may want to quit? Uh, that's a tough one, uh, especially if you're a solopreneur uh, and you don't really answer to anybody other than maybe your spouse. So <laughs> uh, I think it's about having goals, holding yourself accountable. When you put yourself out there, whether it's social media or other places, it helps as well because there are people who are kind of, you loop people into your process. And so you create a level of accountability just through that. Through that. Um, but at the end of the day, you really have to believe in yourself and you have to believe that hard work and focused hard work with, with uh, proper processes and all of that will deliver the results that you're looking for. So it does take a lot of inner fortitude. You have to go in knowing that you're playing the long game, that it's hard to get immediate results in a lot of what we do, but a lot of really good people have succeeded through persistence and through really uh, understanding what they were after and sticking with it till they got there. Like that a lot. Thank you. Uh, last question. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given a chance to say, thank you? You know, there, there are a lot. I was thinking about this question. I don't know if there's one in particular that jumps out at me. Um, but I, I know that there were, there were a couple of teachers who were involved. You know, I went to, um, my, my, my youth was a little bit, I guess we would say tumultuous. Uh, my parents divorced when I was young and there were it wasn't just a matter of parents going in separate ways. There were, let's call it religious differences. People can't see me, but I'm Orthodox Jewish. And so my, my father, you know, embraced religion. My mother went the, in, in a different direction. And so there was a lot of tension. And I went to a religious school that was sort of like, I guess you'd call it a compromise between my two parents and their values. Um, and having adults around me who understood not just that I was here to be educated, but that I was dealing with a variety of other challenges that went beyond uh, the pure academics. That's a very important piece. And I think that for, for school leaders, for, for parents, for teachers, of course, uh, it's important to know the person behind the child, right? I think, um, I don't know if it's John Maxwell, we all know the phrase, um, I, I, I don't care how much you know until I know how much you care, right? We've heard that before. So the, the, the gateway, to a, to, to a person is not knowledge. The gateway to a person is care. The gateway to a person is connection, empathy, um, and, and really, really asking about a person, how are you? As uh, think, about, think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But if my physiological needs are not being met, if I don't feel safe, if I'm not being fed, if I don't have a proper uh, shelter, whatever it is, then 
all of your inspiration and wisdom is going to do little. But if I have that foundation, it doesn't have to be much, but I have to know that somebody's in my corner, then the rest of it can flow. So whatever, whichever teachers did that for me and each one in their own way, um, certainly it's a shout out to all the teachers who are listening on the school leaders who are doing that on a regular basis. Continue to remember that we're people first, students second, and that we can only really inspire and motivate and educate kids when we are focused on who they are as people before we think about who they are as learners. Love it. That's just incredible information right there. Natalie, thanks so much for talking with us today about impactful coaching and consulting and your book, Becoming the New Boss, The New Leader's Guide to Sustained Success, uh, The Impactful Productivity Blueprint, Mastermind Groups, your podcast, blog, and so much more. You have so many resources to offer. It's so cool. It's been enlightening, engaging, and enjoyable connecting and learning with you today. I'm wishing you the best in all you do. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts, Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.